Okay, welcome everyone, and uh, thank you for joining this this CBR webinar. So today, uh, today's webinar is entitled "Looking Forwards, Backwards: uh, Archaeological and Geological Perspectives on a Sustainable Future." So our speakers today will explore the roles and responsibilities of geology and archaeology in addressing fundamental aspects of sustainable development. And this will include themes such as water, mineral resources, energy and, and disaster risk. I'm Matthew Jones, I'm Professor of Quaternary Science in the School of Geography and Future Food Beacon of Excellence at the University of Nottingham. Um, and I have the pleasure of chairing today's event. We have people joining us from all over the world today um, and welcome, very welcome to you all. For those of you who may not be familiar with the CBRL, the Council for British Research in the Levant, who are hosting this event, CBRL is a, an independent UK research charity and membership organisation that exists to conduct, support and promote research in the humanities, social science and related disciplines on and in the Levant. They're part of the British Academy's International Research Institutes, for which they receive a grant to, to continue operations, but are grateful to members and friends whose donations enable them to support and develop additional research projects. They have a hundred year history in the region and today have an office in London and two institutes in the Levant, the Kenyan Institute in East Jerusalem and an institute in Amman which serve as hubs for CBRL's community of scholars from the UK, the Levant and internationally. In normal times, CBRL organise a regular programme of lectures in the UK and at our institutes, and we're very pleased to be able to bring a new version of these events to you in, in the form of these webinars. We very much hope you enjoy today's webinar and that you'll be able to join us for future events, either in person, hopefully one day, or online. Do take a look at the CBL website for, for more information and please consider joining their mailing list uh, for monthly updates on, on other events such as this one for research activities uh, and more. Before I introduce our speakers today, just a quick note on, on housekeeping. The webinar will take the form of a, a keynote presentation for, from Professor Ian Stewart, followed by shorter responses from Professor Abri Jabra and Dr Palmer. As we listen to our speakers, please do post any questions you would like to ask them by using the Q&A function that you should find at the bottom of your screen. We'll have time at the end to answer and discuss these questions after we've listened to our three speakers. It's a great pleasure to be able to introduce our speakers today. Professor Ian Stewart is the newly appointed El Hassan Research Chair in Sustainability at the Royal Scientific Society in Jordan. He's the former director of the Sustainable Earth Institute at the University of Plymouth in the UK. And Ian's long-standing research interests are in geological hazards, geology for sustainable development, and geoscience communication. His geocommunication work has been built on a 15-year partnership with BBC Television, presenting earth science programmes such as Earth, the Power of the Planet, How Earth Made Us, How to Grow a Planet, the rise of the continent and planet oil. Professor Stewart was awarded an MBE for his services to geography and geology education and currently holds a UNESCO chair in geoscience and society and leads the UNESCO's International Geoscience and Geoports Programme Project 685 on geology and sustainable development. 
Professor Nizar Abujaba is the director of the Center for Natural and Cultural Heritage at the German Jordanian University, which he established in 2011. Previously, Professor Nizar worked at Yarmouk University, where he directed the UNESCO Chair for Desert Studies and Desertification Control. And prior to his current role as the center director at the German Jordanian University was the Dean of Research and Graduate Studies. A geologist by training, Professor Nizar's diverse interests revolve around the use of earth science in resolving pressing issues relating to water resources and management, climate change, sustainable planning and cultural heritage. Most recently, he's led a number of projects aimed at reviving the ancient Nabataean flood control system in Petra, a project that won the Ikram Athar Award for Good Practices in Cultural Heritage Conservation and Management in the Arab region last year. Dr. Carol Palmer is Director of the Council for British Research in the Levant, based in Amman. She's an anthropologist, environmental archaeologist and botanist. She wrote her PhD on traditional farming in northern Jordan and subsequently studied Bedouin from southern Jordan as part of the Wadi Fainan project. Her research interests concentrate on recording rural life in its many forms, the contemporary and recent use of plants on the broadest level, cultivated, gathered and grazed, and the effects of changes in food production practices on the landscape and in society. She's also currently an honorary fellow at Bournemouth University. And with that, uh, it's my pleasure to hand over to Professor Ian Stewart for our main presentation today. Thank you, Matt. Thanks a lot. Um, I think this probably officially counts as my first talk in Amman, even though I'm in Plymouth still in the UK, waiting to come out to Amman. So I'll I'll claim it as a half a half talk. It's a it's an absolute delight to be here. Let me just share my screen and we can kick off. Um, So hopefully someone can tell me you should be seeing the um, full screen there. Someone confirm that that's you're seeing it before I go off and yeah. Um. So I'm a uh, yeah. So it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to be. I'm a geologist by background. Um. And so for for us for geologists we have this adage that uh, the the present is the key to the past. Um. But actually what we're all going to be talking about really today is this big question about to what extent is the past the key to the future? And that's within the context of the current emphasis on many of the societal grand challenges, but in particular around sustainable development uh, agenda, which is something that I'm increasingly interested in and working uh, towards. So as a geologist, my past is four and a half billion years old, 4,567 million years old. Um, so that's a, a heck of a past to bring attempt to look at the future with. Um, to put it into context, this uh, Mayan pyramid you're going to see a little bit more in a minute of is around about 45 meters high, which means that every meter is 100 million years, which means that every centimeter there is a million years. The human, uh, the modern humans really want about, what, two millimeters on that, that pyramid and the full length of human civilization in terms of cities and agriculture, et cetera, is probably the, the width of a human hair lying at the bottom of that pyramid. And yet that of course is the, um, the context within which we operate. It's our human world, it's our human history. And it's the, re the, the context of the continuity of that that really is um, what we're talking about today. Um, 
as, as a geologist, even at the start of geology, when geology emerged as a discipline in um, late 18th century with the work of James Hutton in the theory of the earth, it was very clear that geoscience was about the furtherment of human progress. Um, this is the second in the, the first page, the second paragraph of his theory of the earth. This globe of the earth is a habitable world and on its fitness for this purpose, our sense of wisdom and its formation must depend. So our understanding of that physical world, the mission of that is to is for sustainable human progress. And, and I'm going to argue that we've deviated from that significantly and, and to our cost and that we really have to grasp again this knowledge of what science and technology and knowledge is for in order to um, address many of the huge issues that, that we're facing. So that, that question that really the issue is around the survival of, of human species, but also of the kind of complex societies, advanced society that we've developed is, is the key to this issue of sustainability. And, and by sustainability, the, the, I'm using a, a definition you'll see here of long-term well-being for all within the natural limits of nature. And to illustrate that, you've got the, the idea of these planetary boundaries from Rockstrom and the, the group, um, which, which kind of highlight the main uh, biogeophysical threats to, to humanity really in different areas and, and kind of gauge them such that things around the applications of phosphorus and nitrogen and also in biosphere, so biodiversity loss are critical, but other aspects like greenhouse gas emissions, cropland use, freshwater, et cetera, are, are areas that are moving into the risky areas. And so this, this is a moment in time where I think everyone is very concerned about um, the potential climate, climatic and ecological crisis that, that we're facing. But this notion that we're facing an environmental crisis isn't new. Um, this is a, a long quote from Tertullian in the second century AD. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but this is a litany of lament about the nature of the world, the, the, the pleasant land of the past being obliterated, um, turning things into dreary and dangerous waste, cultivated fields of subdued forests, flocks and herds have expelled wild beasts, sandy deserts are now sown with and then if you go down to the end, I've bolded the last one there. Our numbers are burdensome to the world, which can hardly supply us from its natural elements. Our wants grow more and more keen and our complaints more bitter in all mouths, whilst nature fails in affording us her usual sustenance. So this is clearly in a, in a, a Roman empire where people are already seeing this idea of too many people with too few uh, resources and the, you know, the... Um, the, the kind of environmental calamity that, it, that is coming. Um, what we do know from, um, from history, the lessons of historians is, is that history is littered with societies that have come and gone. And um, I, I decided I was going to stay away, <laughs> deliberately so, from the uh, Levant Near East area where everyone probably on this call is an expert except for me. Um, I thought I'd show something where we, um, this was uh, we filmed this in a series called How Earth Made Us about 10 years ago. And this is um, Chaco Canyon in the Four Corners area of Southwest USA. And so what we have here is a, a dispersed uh, society that was very successful today in terms of uh, agriculture in that, that Four Corners area. Existed for about a thousand years in different guises, really, all the way up to 
um, the, the latter part of the 13th century, where it went into a really rapid terminal uh, decline. And um, here at, at Miso Verde as well, which is close by, what we see is the, uh, the, the physical and cultural manifestations of a, a, of a collapsing society that where the, the city starts to build its own fortifications, which was a defense against uh, the kind of societal um, turmoil and upheaval that, that had been created. And even uh, evidence, for example, of, of famine and, and even ca uh, uh, cannibalism in the very last uh, death throes really of the society. Um, th this chap here was our guard uh, during filming and his main job was to make sure I didn't say the word abandonment and cannibalism, both of which are very um, culturally um, difficult in this part of the world, even though it's been written up in, uh, in very esteemed uh, academic journals. But this is a very sensitive issue about what happens when um, societies get confronted by a scale of natural change that is um, that is difficult to get past. It's overwhelming. And the reason why I say natural is because it's now pretty much shown by a number of paleoenvironmental uh, high resolution records and modeling work that the, the death throws, the death knell rather of the, of the ancient American Puebloans, ancient Puebloan people was a mega drought around about 1276, a multi-decadal mega drought in 1276 to 1297, which affected that that whole region. Um, and it's a region then that bounces back and forth between relatively pluvial wet phases and times of great aridity and dryness. And what's interesting is the great shift across from the east coast of, the, of North America to the, to the west under this manifest destiny of that was our land that we could just take. What was done in the middle uh, really part of the, of the 19th century when the conditions in that area for various reasons were much wetter than before. So this notion that the West was this garden, empty garden, just waiting to take this, uh, the, the people from the, from the East Coast was quickly um, pushed back by the time, it just 10, 20 years later in the 1870s uh, onwards when drought started to bite back into that area. And the, the, this is because this area is actually affected by a, a, a oceanographic meteorological uh, condition called La Nina and um, El Nino that operates in the the, uh, the Pacific Ocean, but actually the, the the weather fronts that sweep in from that are really quite crippling. And so what we see here is the result of death, the uh, the Dust Bowl in the 1930s, just showing that this thing goes into the into the 20th century. Um, but this is probably one of the most extraordinary graphs I think I've seen, and uh, I've not used it for a while, so it's nice to revisit it. This is a a record of the, the flow rate of the Colorado River as determined from dendrochronological records um, and nearby. And just with the last section in bold is the actually observed records. And what you can see is that this region of the Southwest USA just lurches between aridity and wetter, uh, more benign conditions. You see in the big star is that mega drought period that finished off the the um, ancient Puebloan uh, people. But you can see that it's part of a, a very staccato climate response system all the way through, uh, going through up until the 19th century. Now, um, the European, uh, the East Coasters, if you like, arrived in that part, the latter part of the 19th century. And between 1900 and 1906, 
the flow rate of the uh, Colorado River was measured. And it was measured in order to determine whether or not there was enough water in this area for big scale civilization or big scale uh, development of cities, etc. Um, and on the basis of that, they then designed the Hoover Dam, which blocked off Lake Mead to give us that water. And what you can see there is that by a, an unfortunate accident, the, the, the six year period that they measured the Colorado River happened to be the largest flow rate in the last 1000 years. So it was an extraordinary time to decide how much water this particular area. I suspect if they'd had that graph in front of them, they would not have built the Hoover Dam and there wouldn't be such a huge development in that area. But they did build a dam and the dam had two purposes. It was to provide water to this region and it's to provide electricity for, again, the region as well. So water to, to nearby cities and, um, and electricity generation in, in order to that whole area to, to develop. Um, and as we look ahead, really, with climate change, you can see, again, this is a simplified version of that, that graph showing the, uh, the mega drought back in 12, 1290s, and then the, the blue dot for when the Hoover Dam was conceived and designed. What we see is those fluctuations are, are going to be accentuated by climate change. All the models, all the climate models, although they disagree for some parts of the world, for Southwest USA, they're pretty... Um, pretty consistent, they see a, a gradual descent into more and more aridity as we go into the future. And that quote from Richard Siegel there, in the southwest, the levels of aridity seen in 1950s multi-year drought, the, or the 1930s dust bowl, become the new climatology by mid-century, a perpetual drought. Um, and the importance there is that just a few miles away, tens of miles away, we have this, one of the great cities of the modern world. This is Las Vegas, a city that is dependent on the electricity from the Hoover Dam, a city that is dependent largely for its water from Lake Mead, a city that has been built in the middle of the desert because we could, because human ingenuity and technology um, in the 20th century made it possible for us to do something as extraordinary as this. And it seems incredible to think that this city may not survive into the middle of this century. But on the other hand, when you look at those climate records, it seems extraordinary that it could possibly survive into the middle of this century. Water will be the crippling, limiting element of this and other cities in this particular area. Um, when I was filming in here, um, I, was, I was astounded to see that um, there's lots of the streets, see a lot of greenery here, and actually some of the streets that we filmed in had um, you know, tree-lined avenues and there were sprinkler systems and, uh, and the sprinklers were using fresh water. When I asked why on earth is it using fresh water, um, they said, well, it's in case small children drink the water and get diseases and so we use fresh water. So we can see that the, the relationship of this city to water is, is absolutely quite perverse. So really, um, this brings me to my second part of the talk, really, which is that we have left behind an extraordinary stable period. I mean, when I did my degree, nothing happened in the Holocene. And then we started to find out um, that actually there was quite a lot of things happening. But in broad terms, the climate was stable enough that agriculture and, and, and cities could, could take off in relatively uh, stable conditions. And yet 
we live in right now in the last, you know, our generation, the generation before us are living at a, a, a moment in time, not just in human history, I think in Earth history, where we are switching into this idea where humans now are a key driving force of, of most of our environments. So the idea of the Anthropocene is now uh, kind of taking over. And when we think of the Anthropocene, people, cultural theorists get rather upset because they say, well, actually, this isn't really the Anthropocene. It's a very small part. It's a, it's a part of the human condition that's driven by capitalism, by free market capitalism, by a rampant uh, um, uh, economic growth that is driven by profit maximization and the manifest as really high levels of consumptions and globalization. And that, of course, is, is true. That is the nature of, of not just Las, Las Vegas, but our modern world. But it's worthwhile thinking about that idea of free market capitalism and economic growth as to why it came about. You know, it came around in out of a, the early part of the 20th century, where whether it was political figures like Hitler or the kind of kind of raw economic barons like your Rockefellers and your Carnegies, there were individuals who held huge wealth or huge power in individual hands. And so the, the notion of the free market became this idea of disseminating, of spreading, the, the making sure that the wealth from, in, from business, which was business was seen as the way to take to provide well-being to societies so by by generating income that could be then spread through business and businesses then were required to distribute it to their shareholders in order to help get that wealth out into into society rather than being being held off um the the other aspect i think that's important in terms of the free market economics and the uh the uh, mental models really of the Anthropocene is the notion that humans were self-interested rational beings. That actually you didn't change, you don't try and change the market. The market, market dominated because we as individuals, as long as we had the right information, we would make choices that adjusted to our well-being, And that itself would shape the market. So the market would be reflected by human choice and everything would be okay. Um, we now know from, from psychologists and from a whole bunch of other ways that, that actually humans aren't self-interested rational beings. We operate often with our own uh, irrationalities and, and lots of other things influence. However, it has to be said, and the point will be made if I don't, is that that economic growth has gr brought great riches for the world and, and, and great development. This is uh, Hans Rosling, who's one of the leaders in that, the, his book Factfulness, um, amazing um, outline really of, of just how economic growth uh, has permeated through and has raised not just incomes in parts of the world as we've seen here, but also, um, you know, it's absolutely reduced infant mortality deaths. Um, almost all the indices we see have improved as a result of this permeation of income through this, uh, this um, free market capitalism but at a cost. This is the great acceleration as, as anthropologists refer to it. Um, on the left, we have human indices and on the right, we have physical indices. And it, the, each of these charts is from 1700, actually 1750 all the way through to the present day. And you'll see a dashed line, which is 1950. So that's the period of the industrial revolution as it is in the West, Western world. And what we see is that really nothing happens until um, the 20th century and in particular until 1950 in the post-war economic boom. And then the human planet 
explodes around the world. And then you can see on the right hand side the the impact that that has on the, on the natural planet. Almost all the natural systems react, whether it's carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, or methane, or stratosphere, or whether it's uh, ocean acidification or things to do with fishing, etc. The natural world reacts to this this um, order of magnitude, several order of magnitude um, scale of imposition by by humanity on it. And so, what we're ending up with then is that that economic growth has been at the cost of the planet in terms of driving a climatic and an ecological uh, crisis that is starting to become ever more apparent. Um, there's lots of diagrams I could show for this, but this is one where we see that, that idea of history in different time slices. So uh, in the far left, we see tens of millions of years and millions of years, then hundreds of thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, and then uh, more recent history. And what we see then is that as we look forward 1950 to 2150, we see the change in trajectory of temperature rising up, going up to, well, by 2100 and 2200, maybe between five and 10 degrees, which if you then sweep across to your left, brings you to a temperature conditions that the planet has not seen for 20 or 30 or 40 million years. And certainly humanity has never seen that. So we have, we have taken the biophysics of the planet and changed it outside the realm of the, um, the limits within which uh, um, civilization, everything that we know developed, which is that, that yellow line that you'll see there from the, from the Holocene. And so this is an extraordinary uh, change. So that was the situation we are now. What about the future? Well, 2015, I think, will be the year that people will remember as the year when things changed. 2015 was the year that um, the United Nations Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk comes in, which is something that's uh, a lot in my world, disaster risk. It was the 2015 was Paris Climate Agreement, where we had trajectory, a roadmap, essentially, of how we're going to deal with climate change. And then, of course, the uh, UN Sustainable Development Goals. Each of these set out a framework, but more than a framework, a roadmap of how the world needed to deal with these absolutely major um, challenges that it had to itself. So my question is really that I spend a lot of my time thinking about it. So how does the academic world, the university world, uh, the scientific world for me, how do we how do we change? Because we can't go on with businesses as usual. There has to be a, a change here. How, do, how will it change happen? So one of the things is we know that the planet's interconnected. We know that there's different spheres, the hydrosphere and the, the geosphere, the biosphere, that the cryosphere of ice, the atmosphere. They're all interconnected. You change one, you change the rest of it. Whether you call it Gaia or Earth system science. Um, but in the same way, what we haven't seen is we haven't seen that switch in the academic sector. And it has to happen. We need to start working. These are wicked, in other words, almost unsolvable problems in terms of simple solutions. They're going to require interdisciplinary at very least, and perhaps transdisciplinary when everyone's really involved and really focused on a problem um, inquiry. And so in terms of science communication, which is my area, it this graph just or this plot just shows how what we really need to be doing is to be to be taking the environmental sciences, which given us the technical data and our, our data models. And really blurring that and blending it with the creative arts and, and the uh, media arts, which provides 
those ideas of inspiration and motivation and, and different ways of connecting to different um, groups and audiences. Alongside the social sciences, the, the human sciences that allow us to develop how we frame our problem, the mental models by which people understand them and the communication channels that we reach them through. And then finally, but not least, is the deeper um, notions of ethics, values, worldwide views that will come from philosophy and religion. And those need to be blended and brought together if we're going to make any inroads in trying to address the rest of these issues. Um, that's already starting to happen in terms of the approach that scientists are taking to society. So this, um, the, the graph on the left-hand side really is different ways of, of, of modes of science really depending on the motivation of the researcher, which is the vertical axis, whether it's pursuit of knowledge or applied solve, problem solving. Or on the horizontal axis, the, the um, participation of other users, the public or, or, or other stakeholders. And what you'll see is that mode one science down the bottom left is your traditional academic. It's publishing research papers, going to conferences. It's us trying to think of what research we're interested in and then basically uh, yeah, trying to communicate that. And then there's user-inspired basic research where we tweak our research because we, we think it fits with what other people are interested in. Then there's pure applied, which is really uh, working to other people's problems. But if you shift to the right-hand side, you get into areas that are coming through and referred to as post-normal, um, which is co-production. So working alongside uh, your stakeholders and bringing them into the process and social learning, which is undertaking action research in those very communities themselves. So the nature of science is, is slowly changing, but I would say it's changing underneath the radar really. In terms of communication, the way that I interpret that is, is a three-stage thing of communication. Um, the academic realm is a make and sell where we use communication just to sell how amazingly clever we are and how fantastic our science is to a public who actually haven't asked for that science, we've just delivered it to them. The sense and respond, is communications that recognize that social sciences can really in psychology and can really help us understand how people think how people make decisions and we could target our messaging more effectively in that realm but really the end game for communications is this guide and co-create the notion that we have to, that we have guidance we have academic leadership we need to show that but that we need to co-create um, those alliances and relations with the stakeholders as we as we move forward which means that key communication skills for the 21st century will be interdisciplinary working, participatory, bringing other voices in and being truly reflexive about the work we do. Um, so in relation to that, then I bring you back to sustainability um, and I've shown you Daly's triangle, which is this notion of um, at the bottom, we have everything's based on the ultimate means. We might refer to it as natural capital, which is the biosphere, earth materials, etc. And on the basis of that, we build our industry, we've got built, you know, we build our cities, our infrastructure, or we build our industries, human capital. Um, and on the basis of that, then we have our modern world, but right at the top, we have the ultimate ends, what it's all about, happiness, harmony, fulfillment, well-being, etc. Now, I would argue that the middle part of that graph is the area that we've concentrated on for with uh, economic growth and free market economics with the assumption that it will trickle up basically into to well-being. But that's the area of the circular economy and all the rest of it. Most of the people who look at sustainability from a natural side are interested in the ultimate means, making sure the biosphere is protected, making sure earth materials are protected, et cetera. 
but really one of the main purposes of everything else is is of human well-being of people having the ability to um, have the kind of world that they would like to, to have and so to be honest the whole thing needs to be all uh, tied together and what ties it together is a sense of purpose purpose being a long pursuit of a long-term motivating goal um, for an individual for an organization for for a, a kind of community and so that's the 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 essence of that that i'd like to um come back to about how are we going to develop a purpose-led mission around sustainability that addresses the issue of natural capital in relation to the economic system we have but it's really thinking long term about human well-being and increasing human well-being so i just I'll finish there. My point is that I think we're at a point of transformation. We're at another of these turning points in Earth history. And really what we do over the next 10 years, probably 15 years, will be absolutely critical on looking at the trajectory of that, that graph that I showed you going out to 2100 and 2200. And it's, it's how we address those issues here and now with the, uh, a just transition looking at human well-being and addressing those natural issues and i think that this is the place where that long cultural record that historical record of how past peoples have confronted these types of of challenges and got through them or not will be absolutely critical uh, narrative for us to to bring out and so on that point i will i will stop sharing thank you many thanks ian lots of Lots of food for thought there. I think as, as we transition into our next speaker, I'd just like to remind everyone that please do, do if, as you're thinking about these things, put questions into the Q&A function, which should hopefully you be able to find it at the bottom of your screen. And then we'll pick up those questions and, and be able to discuss them after we've heard from our other two speakers. So now move on to our, to our second speaker of the, uh, of the webinar. So I'd like to invite uh, Professor Nizar Abujaba to um, to share his slides and, and to respond in some way to what Ian said, but also to tell us about his own work. Thank you, Nizar. Thank you very much. Uh, I think uh, I can't compete with the visual feast that uh, Ian was able to share with us. Um, clearly, uh, uh, all of these issues that Ian raises are global issues and maybe uh, it's time to kind of think about Jordan um, just because that's what I have in mind for uh, sharing with you and uh, the idea here is to uh, look forward backwards at a more local scale. And uh, I'll talk a little bit about uh, Jordan, where we are. I think uh, many of you are familiar with the theory of plate tectonics. And plate tectonics is essentially the idea that uh, the Earth's crust is in continuous motion. And this motion uh, affects the surface uh, nature of the Earth in uh, different uh, areas in different ways. In our case in Jordan, we're uh, situated uh, essentially adjacent to what's called the Dead Sea Rift Valley. 
and uh, rifting is a quite an interesting process. You might uh, take a look at the graph on your uh, right side of the screen here. And one of the things you might notice is how we conceptualize how rifting happens, which is that you have some sort of uh, uh, plume that uh, uh, forms a linear type of uh, feature. And this plume uplifts the area that's going to be rift rifted. And then uh, you have a series of parallel uh, down faulted uh, basins that fall. But you can see that, that uplifting is also part of the rifting process. And so uh, when we look at Jordan, uh, we, uh, as I said, uh, we're adjacent to this uh, so-called Dead Sea Rift, which uh, was initiated about uh, 30 million years ago. And I like to uh, show images like this uh, through uh, Google Earth. And um, so, of course, Jordan is at the top part of your screen. And you might uh, wonder uh, what's the uh, idea here. And obviously, you can see the rift value. So this is kind of a very clear delineation that can uh, that uh, everybody in Jordan knows about. But also, it's important to uh, conceptualize the idea of what it was like to uh, live in this area based on this uh, this topography that we have here. First of all, uh, uh, it's uh, it's notable that we do have uplifting along both sides of the rift, just like our cartoon that I showed in the previous uh, slide uh, kind of uh, uh, shows. And so you have these highlands that are adjacent to this rift valley. And these highlands um, um, basically uh, uh, are separated by this deep depression. So what you have, of course, here is the Dead Sea, which is about 400 meters below sea level. And then you have the adjacent highlands which are at elevations that, uh, of course, fluctuate. But uh, in Amman, you're talking about uh, a little more, more than uh, a thousand meters above sea level. In Petra in the south, you, you're talking about about 1,600 meters. And all along this rift valley, you're essentially always uh, a little bit uh, plus or minus near 1,000. And then when you go towards the east, you start to drop. So the Ezraq Basin over here, you're about 550 meters. So you can kind of uh, visualize that. And you might say, OK, so what makes this interesting? And so uh, you might think about uh, what's going on here in terms of people living on this land. And so living on this land means that you have this high ridge that's on this uh, western margin uh, of the Rift Valley. And this high uh, uh, area is where you get most of the rain because you have this orographic effect. And this is Amman here. And so most of your rainfall is along this uh, uh, area, this highland area here and in the south as well. Here. Um, and uh, so you get most of the rain here. 
And you might think, where would wanna, people want to live? And it turns out that uh, what you have in terms of water resources is, a, uh, is basically concentrated along this uh, very uh, uh, narrow uh, margin. And the reason for that is because these highlands are mostly made up of Cretaceous limestone. And these limestones are very good aquifers. So what happens is you get the rainfall in these highlands, and then you have uh, the water uh, percolating into the aquifers, and then they uh, come out along the uh, outcrops along this uh, ridge. So you find all of the old cities are basically uh, constrained to this area, first of all, because of the rainfall, and secondly, because of the springs. So you have that. You also have the issue of these uh, uh, traversing uh, drainage basins that are cutting into the rift because of course uh, you start to develop uh, uh, rivers that kind of flow into the rift valley. And these rivers uh, are also areas where people tend to concentrate again because of the springs and because um, uh, they basically represent pathways that allow uh, travel uh, from this area to the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, you have this, uh, plus you have the uh, differentiation in terms of climate. So this area down here is dry and, uh, and uh, hot and up here is cold. So you have a lot of tribes actually uh, having uh, annual migrations up and down the Rift Valley uh, winter in the uh, warm areas and the summer in the cooler areas. So you have uh, the whole uh, area is set up in a way that is uh, very much uh, concentrated along this, uh, this Rift Valley. Uh, also, uh, what you might want to keep in mind is that uh, uh, this uh, Rift Valley is very uh, steep. And so you can kind of see it uh, here. You can see very well that these, uh, this margin is uh, fault controlled and the, the cliffs are very steep. And so uh, you, you might imagine the challenges that come from wanting to uh, build uh, towns uh, roads, uh, water distribution infrastructure, and all of those things along this um, unstable, seismically active uh, zone. And so when we think about the idea that Jordan has been almost permanently inhabited throughout the Holocene, uh, it uh, definitely needs to cross your mind that people might have learned a couple of things along the way. And so uh, people actually did learn how to manage this uh, very uh, uh, challenging uh, landscape, not to add the fact that you also had climatic fluctuations throughout that time. So that's another uh, dimension to it. So this is a very um, difficult place to live. And so if you want to think about how people manage to uh, traverse these types of challenges, uh, I don't think you can find a better place to, to look than here. So um, this is uh, Wadi Musa. 
this is to the south again, our Wadi Araba, which is the southern part of the Jordan Rift Valley, and uh, Petra. And you uh, you can see again you're along this um, uh, very steep uh, incline. So you have uh, the Shara Mountains here. So you're 1600 meters above sea level over here. Uh, Wadi Musa about 1200. Then Petra itself. So you're here. You're about a thousand plus or minus. And then down to about minus 300 meters when you get to Wadi Araba. So this is a very steep area. So people, uh, the Nabataeans about 2000 years ago decided that this is a perfect place to build their uh, fantastic city of Petra. And uh, of course they had to overcome a lot of challenges. One of them is the area is pretty dry. Uh, secondly, it's pretty steep. Thirdly, the plant cover isn't uh, very strong. And so you might think, okay, maybe they weren't so smart trying to choose this place, but obviously they had their reasons, so they did. And they had to, uh, uh, let's say, uh, manage uh, a lot of issues related to water resources and also because of the steepness and the the way that rainfall patterns are there that they had to deal also with flooding. Uh, so you have problems of water, you have problems of agriculture, you have problems of flooding, and also they were merchants. And so one of the most important aspects of uh, what they were doing was uh, was maintaining uh, infrastructure for uh, for roads, uh, because obviously it was a caravan stop, and they were uh, they made most of their fortunes uh, through uh, through trade, and so they. Uh, they had their pathways down to Wadi Araba, down to the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, they couldn't afford their roads to be washed away and uh, uh, and uh, to be cut off. So they uh, they had to deal uh, a lot with, with a lot of uh, maintaining of infrastructure in addition to all of the other challenges I mentioned earlier. So, um, one of, so what I'm going to focus on a little bit is the idea of uh, flash flooding. And so, uh, again, this is a different type of perspective. This is Wadi Musa and Petra. And these arrows show all of the areas around Petra uh, where uh, we found um, uh, terraces that were designed to control runoff. The idea was that you can't control flooding uh, through one uh, set of infrastructure because it's a dispersed uh, drainage basin and uh, you didn't know where the stream might come from. And so uh, essentially they uh, had a, a non-centralized uh, flood control system uh, that uh, attempted to stop the rain wherever uh, it might have manifested. So uh, one of the um, the site actually we're interested in is, uh, sorry, is Wadi Hrimiya. Wadi Hrimiya actually is a stream that uh, flows into the treasury, um, uh, the treasury uh, plaza uh, right beyond the Sikh. And so uh, many times when we see those videos of flooding in Petra, actually the water comes from from this small tributary that actually we found uh, was heavily um, 
intervened with in order to try to mitigate the problem of flooding that would come from that site. So um, this we've uh, developed this uh, um, drainage system map and uh, try to uh, uh, delineate exactly where the water would come from, which areas. And so this is uh, another uh, type of map. It, here, this one actually uh, is interesting because it uh, emphasizes the steepness of the area. So the area is very steep. It's a small drainage basin. It's about, about 0.3 kilometers. Uh, but it's uh, but it brings in a lot of water and it does uh, uh, pose a hazard to the to the people of uh, who are down in the sea. Uh, so we did a scanning of the area. This is our colleague, Dr. Abdullah, and we've actually delineated the areas has over a hundred of these terraces all uh, all along them, and the whole idea of these terraces. Uh, again, was to try to uh, mitigate the problem of flooding, not from a centralized uh, set of dams, but of a dispersed group of dams. So we have these very uh, relatively small uh, terraces and check dam systems that are designed to, um, uh, to inhibit the movement of water. So we actually uh, did a serious uh, documentation of this area using a 3D scanner uh, in addition to the uh, drones. And uh, then uh, we're, uh, we did a lot of work, actually. I can't go into everything. We did a lot of work on the hydrology and trying to understand how much water is going through and the depth of the rainfall and uh, how, how much water we would uh, expect from every specific event and what's the rain runoff coefficient. And uh, so uh, we did, and plus we developed uh, uh, a system for uh, collecting runoff data so we could actually measure runoff and we distributed uh, different runoff sensors through the area. We distributed also a bunch of, uh, uh, of uh, rainfall uh, measurement devices as well. So we, uh, we have a lot of rain and runoff data. Uh, we, uh, we've done uh, computer modeling on the hydrology of the area. And uh, based on all of these things, plus uh, talking with the local community and talking with the archaeologists who are also with us on the team, like Katrina, uh, all of us uh, said, OK, we have to do this in a way that's, uh, 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 let's say, uh, will help mitigate the flooding problem, but also in a way that's uh, respectful of the uh, nature of the site. Petra is a World Heritage Site, as all of you know. And so uh, based on uh, lots of discussions, lots of science, lots of uh, 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 stakeholder meetings, and uh, lots of training of the local people, we decided, OK, let's go ahead. And so we started working on rebuilding uh, this uh, terrace system. Uh, of course, uh, with the help of uh, our uh, architect here, Safa, and uh, the local communities who helped us uh, rebuild check dams like this one. And uh, yeah, so uh, and now uh, we're expanding this project and we're also keeping an eye on to see uh, exactly how, uh, how good the Nabataeans actually were and see how, how well this, uh, this system would work.
And so the idea again is uh, looking forward backward. Can we actually look forward in terms of problem, uh, solving problems like flooding in Petra, which is uh, till, to the, till this day a hazard that the local authorities need to deal with. And uh, so uh, the idea of course is, uh, I think uh, we can learn a lot of ideas uh, regarding sustainability and green technologies uh learning from how people used to do this in the past so that's what i wanted to say many things thanks Nizar. it's really really great to hear about your work so thanks for sharing it with us and um, so now i'm going to move on to our, to, our, to our third speaker Hi. Oh, thanks. Please do, do carry on. Thank you. Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you, Ian and Nizar, for some very thought provoking uh, talks um, today. I'm here, in a sense, to, um, to speak about my experience working, if you like, with traditional management of the land. People who know me uh, know that I've worked on um, fellahin or um, peasants uh, and traditional agriculture um, in, see that, I'm make sure I'm sharing, uh, in Northern Jordan, can everyone see that? Um, picking up on the theme of using some of the Google uh, satellite imagery. So, um, I've principally done uh, research in Northern Jordan um, among Fellahin in the Horan area, and uh, also in Southern Jordan around Wadi Finan and uh, Shobak and uh, around the Tefila area. And I wanted to share with you uh, today some reflections on um, what uh, being with those people, most of this work I have to say was done um, 20 to 30 years ago even, um, looking at their orientation towards the land, um, people who are close to the land. Obviously Jordan has changed tremendously um, uh, in the last 50, 60 years. And I went out particularly to search for people who could uh, help me understand um, especially agriculture, wheat agriculture, this is the place where, um, where wheat and barley and, and uh, many of the an annual crops some 10,000 years ago were domesticated. Farming has been here for a long time. Also pastoralism, the whole of the, of the Holocene, there's been a relationship of people managing their environment with with crops and animals. So I just want to show you some of the people that I met and who helped me along the way. These are um, people from Northern Jordan, those who know uh, some of the clothing will recognize the typical uh, dress of the Horan. Um, it's along the rift, along the highlands, uh, quite a well-watered area that, uh, that Nizar was describing. Uh, a real focus in the Horan on, on wheat and agriculture and ploughing and getting the most from the land. 
in the south of Jordan, I was mainly dealing um, with, with Bedouin, um, but also villagers who were uh, using the, the Rift Valley, the geography to go from uh, a better watered highlands down to the, uh, to the Wadi Araba and around Finan. These photos are from some time ago, and I feel very privileged to have seen uh, some of these practices, which I know are less common uh, these days. So along that rift, we have thresholds for cultivation of wheat and barley and the main, the main crops. Wheat, you can cultivate with an average rainfall between 250 and 300 millimeters. Barley, um, around 200 to 250, and lentil, uh, around 300. And these are um, some of the most common um, crops that are still grown, obviously, to this day. And this is the region from where they come. This is uh, at the heart of the so-called Fertile Crescent. What I wanted to show is that um, averages in this region mask um, a high degree of variability year to year. And although um, averages may say 250 or 300 millimeters, um, in fact, as you can see from this chart that was done as part of my PhD work and uh, published later in 1998, um, there's a very close match between how much rainfall you get and yield. But also, if you can pick it out, um, if you go below um, that 250 uh, rainfall, average rainfall, uh, the, the yield actually crashes, um, you get failure, crop failure. And much about what traditional agriculture, the life of the fellahin was about, was about ensuring you got a crop, so-called risk minimization, as opposed to a more modern way of looking at the land in terms of maximizing production. So um, ways, traditional ways of managing water in conservation involve plowing. Um, Richard Antoon, a very famous anthropologist who worked in Kufr al-Mar in, in the north of Jordan, uh, recorded this phrase, he who has tilled his soil twice has watered it once. And you can still, these pictures are from some time ago, but you can still see people to this day in some of the rockier, more inaccessible areas still using the traditional ard, which just turns the top part of the soil to plow the land. This is to receive the crop, but also to keep the moisture within, within the soil uh, for the wheat later. Weeding is also a part of that moisture conservation. We're really up very far in the north of Jordan here, remembering a day I spent uh, weeding with some of the fellahin there. It's not only you're removing the weeds that are competing with the crop for water and light, but also you can, you can eat and consume those weeds or give them to your animals. 
Um, the principles of fallow, um, this plowing is that you're trying to break um, the connection between uh, the surface of the land with the stored moisture below from, uh, from, from the plowing. So by plowing, you're creating air pockets that prevent um, water escaping. And even if you conserve only 10% of the water that was received in the winter, you, uh, you can ensure that you have a crop the next year. Also, when people are close to the land, the Pelahin, there was much discussion uh, about the timing of the crop, when you sowed, how much you sowed. Early rainfall usually indicates a good year and you want to get out and sow as soon as you possibly can. Again, sowing rates vary according to the rainfall and the land quality. And fallow, um, this off year, people traditionally use either a two or a three year regime where they have fallow as part of it. The fallow being when you're plowing to conserve water, but also during that fallow year, you can plant so-called summer crops um, that use a relatively minimal amount of water, but still give you a crop. In order to ensure uh, supply, people diversified. These are some um, summer crops again. From different areas, wheat, barley, lentil are from this area, from the Fertile Crescent, but we have crops coming in from here, from all around the globe through time. The lubia, um, cow or Asiatic bean, is actually from the old world, although you have the new world beans coming in later. And then a very um, ancient crop known actually in Mesopotamia, also in ancient Egypt, the Melo-Ogoak type of, uh, of, uh, of melon, also known as uh, fagus lo locally because it snaps um, very much like cucumber. And then of course, people had livestock um, as well and livestock, were integrated or are integrated with uh, cultivation. They eat the straw. Um, people grow wheat and barley, not only for the grains that, they, that humans eat, but also for the, for the straw as well, which is absolutely essential to maintain the crops with the herd becoming like a walking larder. And here are some pictures, some historic and some that I took along the Kerat Plateau and in Tefila in Jordan. And just, um, I'm showing here a picture of, uh, uh, of, of the Dana Reserve, Romana Hill in the background, the Wadi Dana and uh, the very famous Dana village. Um, these people lived somewhere between agriculture and pastoralism. Um, going out in summer to these rugged mountains and coming back to uh, their village um, in, in winter um, as well, mixing the different ways of life in order to live. But this is a comparison of this very rugged terrain 
which in some ways, and it's certainly at some times of year, we're in springtime now, so it looks particularly green, can look very unpromising, but people lived and uh, were very uh, close, close to the land through the, uh, the whole course of the Holocene. And also what, um, what the village of, of Dana has were, is some irrigated orchards as well with um, olives, figs, pomegranates. Um, and to say that many of the valleys had these spring-fed orchards too, and that there was, they were communally managed with people um, sharing the water through um, allotted time um, periods to grow their trees. And also in summer and spring, people would often go out to these mountains, but in summer people would move to the orchards to collect the, the crops too. Um, I also wanted to share that in this region, the Bedouin also um, cultivated too. And um, this is a picture from, I had the privilege of uh, working with um, Ken Russell um, and uh, below Petra at a, um, a Bedouin site of the Dool uh, camping site called Torum Dai in the Wadi Siag. And uh, the Bedouin there, they, they were reusing at that time some of the Nabataean, the Nabataean areas for uh, cultivation. At this time, they were using it for, um, for tobacco, in fact. <laughs> but um, this is uh, Saad, one of the Bedouin that I met um, with Ken Russell, um, who had his field. Um, where he was directing the, the, the rainfall that comes in, in, in very heavily um, at times towards his field. So you can see um, that he has a channel here and then he has plowed such that he can spread out the, wa out the water so he can grow his crop. The traditional way also to manage water and manage your crops is also through storage. So very well known in the region, you have these areas of springs, but people had cisterns, beer, where they collected water. This is an example from Northern Jordan and people do this still to this day. And there are many, uh, I know development schemes now looking at refurbishing these systems. You store water, you store food through your animals, but also through the storage of milk products. And also in traditional housing, um, grain bins, um, either this one made of mud, uh, which is freestanding or actually within the architecture of the house was um, the dominant feature of housing in, in the past. And also people would bury and store underground as well. So in thinking about um, how people uh, in the past uh, and still to this day manage um, to get a crop and live a life and have done so for many thousands of years from this landscape, I wanted to reflect on the ways and the small scale ways 
that people um, use the land through moisture conservation, through plowing, weeding, opportunism and how they crop, um, being very close to the land, diversification, mobility, um, going out with their animals, um, ranging, irrigation, which could often be spring-fed and small-scale, terracing, um, which uh, Dr. Nizar has, Professor Nizar has spoken about, and also through storage. Much of what I have done has been to, um, to record and really learn, but in thinking about sustainability, um, we realize that uh, much has changed. Um, the life has changed, people living this uh, life way are very few, but how can we use this knowledge actually gathered over thousands of years, um, which has its own science, which has its own knowledge of the land? How can we use it in making an area that is known for the origins of farming, the origins of agriculture, but is now one of the most food insecure places in the world? How can we? bring this back. And I'm saying this knowing that there are now movements um, within Jordan and also Palestine um, to respect again and to look again at these ways of life and this um, traditional knowledge and how we can use it going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Um, so we'll just um, come to some questions now, and if I, so, if I can ask all the all the speakers to to show themselves again, and we can join back together for some for some discussion. So I'm just going to pick up some of the questions that have come in through through the chat as as you've all been speaking, um, and I'm going to um, in no particular order. And thank you uh, for everyone for sending these in. Um, I'm going to start with a. A question from Bob Bewley who asks about sort of a, a broad approach to if we want to, to save the human species as, as a way of saving the planet um, where is the most important place to start that process maybe not just place but in terms of yeah I suppose I asked for that by given the context of my my talk really uh, is that for me Matt or Oh, you've you've hung geography and geography and educationally you know where, where do we oh uh, yes if you could start in please and then you, you were just dipping out there but um Sorry. yeah i'm saying i brought that on myself by uh by the provocation really i mean it's clearly a colossal scale of problem and it's not the only one you know, we've got a set of nested interconnected so-called wicked problems in the sense of them not having a simple solution and 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 that's why we need these different approaches. So, you know, I think the question of where do we start is a difficult, you know, it's obviously a difficult one. Um, there's different levels that we can approach that. And, you know, action has to take at all different levels. It has to happen at government level and business level. It has to happen at individual level and then in between. And in between, the bit that I guess we have control over, we have influence on is the academic world. You know, what is our, I think one of the things we have to really think about is, what are, as academics, as experts, what is our role and responsibility in this? 
And it, you know, increasingly surprises me that that people who really understand the science and understand the the, the nature of the particularly the climate record, and ecological record, and and can see what's happening, we still find ourselves impaired and constrained about taking action. We still hide amongst writing academic papers and going to conferences and presenting it and, and not feeling that we should be catalysts for action in society or even activists out there. And that's a really difficult, you know, ethical, moral territory to do. But I think until, you know, if, if, ex, if the experts and the academics who understand the science aren't going to take action, then why the hell should anyone else? You know, I mean, this is, this is one of the areas of the whole thing. And I think it really questions the whole academic exercise really um, because the assumption we've always had is that if we just have more knowledge about these things and put that knowledge out then because people are self-interested rational beings it'll take care of itself it's kind of that free market economics but from knowledge production and what we're realizing now is one we don't have time and two that doesn't seem to work and so i think we need a new model a new way of thinking and i think universities in general need to start having that discussion internally and academics need to have it um, so, I mean, I, that, that's one tiny slice of the problem and I appreciate it doesn't address the question at all, but it's the only bit that I can get my head around to thinking, thinking of because the problem is so huge. Okay, so we have a, a question that maybe follows on from that. I'll ask Ian to answer first, but then I'd also like to ask Nizar and Carl for their thoughts on this one. So this is a question coming from uh, Hussam Hussain, um, who, who asks, you know, given, given that, all those things you, you've just said, I guess. How how do you plan to ensure sort of science policy engagement um, in your in your new role with a particular view of, of sustainable development in Jordan? I, I think it's about being a bridge from the expertise, the scientific and technical ex expertise that we have to the people that matter. And that could be communities or it could be government officials or it could be anything in between. I think the 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 issue is that um for too long we've we've been held up and we've held up ourselves as experts with this again the assumption that we just need to say this is how it is and if if we can get our communications clear enough everyone will see it that way we now realize that we're just one voice in this broader spectrum of, of voices and stakeholders so i think scientists need to to get out and start engaging with the the people who are really going to be affected by these things and, and I think that means, uh, you know, more, as I said, more interdisciplinary, more participatory. So the kind of projects that I'd really like to work on with the Royal Scientific Society are projects where we're getting the academics out of their comfort zone, really, and into might be uh, literally the community, or it might be um, into understanding how the media works, how policy works, how you actually affect real change out there, not in the academic world. Because in my view, we have enough information we have enough data. Of course, there's nice to have some more, but we don't shouldn't wait for that data in order to take action. So I think it's about understanding the communication channels a lot better. And I think once we do that, then I think academics again and experts can really start to, to make a contribution. Nizar, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, please. Okay, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think uh, there's always this uh, issue of linking uh, 
what we know with the, with the actual practice. And I think we're always stuck with this issue of, okay, we know everything and we are screaming at the top of our lungs and nobody's listening. And I think the only way to, to actually get things done is to go and do it yourself. And so this is kind of the attitude I have with this project in Petra is that, okay, uh, we know how these things work. We've mapped them, we've documented them. And if we don't go out there and rebuild them ourselves and show people that they work, that, okay, this is interesting, but nobody's going to take it very seriously. So I think this uh, going this extra step of actually implementing some of these ideas and proving that they work uh, will probably be very useful uh, in that regard. Carol, I don't know if you want to come in on this one. Or... Um, uh, yes, uh, it's very much what we're all um, grappling with. Um, right now we've um, created or we've uh, learnt from others this amazing knowledge as, uh, as researchers, as scientists and um, I guess most particularly for me, who feels that I've particularly benefited from the knowledge of people here. Um, how do you, uh, you know, how do you then articulate it while still recognizing um, that uh, uh, things are very much changed? A lot of the traditional agriculture and systems were when the population was hugely lower <laughs> and. Um, and also, I've often said it's, um, you know, the traditional agricultural life and many of these things are hugely hard work, the harvest and carrying water and all of these things. So how can we find um, some sort of modification or way around it and contribute to the debate? I've seen in my time in, in Jordan um, a shift, I would say, in that, um, Aware, um, in that uh, when I was first living with families in villages, they were saying, why are you interested in this old stuff? <laughs> and, um, and I had a particular connection, if you like, with the grandparents and, you know, who, who used to uh, sort of uh, find it charming that I wanted to know the names of the weeds and, and how they did things to now actually a generation that is really engaged um, in this and there's um, more interest. I mean, it's, you know, you know um, slow food, uh, all of these kinds of movements. So it's how to, I guess, tell, um, not tell in, just share. Um, a lot of the knowledge I have is, uh, is already published is how to communicate that um, and yes, to say it is for um, generations who are here now, but how can we, those of us, including um, CBRL as an organization, engage and be uh, involved um, in this phrase that's now very common knowledge exchange as well. Thanks, Carol. Um, lots of questions coming in now, so um, I just want to check with the panellists that they're happy to 
to keep going given we're, we're now at the end of our official uh, uh, time but i'm gonna if that's okay i'll keep asking questions <laughs> so hopefully they'll stay on um so i just um wanted to pick up um a sort of general question from uh, richard arthur and apologies for the paraphrasing but i just wondered if there was you know we for example when we um think about the Levant and then thought about this in other areas you're talking a lot about water as an issue and this is linked to climate change as a CO2 thing and there's lots of ways of looking at that angle but Richard's core question is is there a danger we focus only on one thing and then we lose lose the broader picture and is there a danger in that or is actually a, a useful way of, of focusing on the problem or on those broader problems? Ian what, what's your view on that? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, it, there's various ways of answering it. I mean, you could argue that climate change itself is so broad and all-encompassing that tackling the climate change is as itself hugely interdisciplinary and, and then takes you into almost all of the kind of key issues. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're also interested in human well-being, then it's about you know, it's about jobs and health, and, and in that sense, sometimes climate change can seem quite far removed from people. Um, I mean, I, w I wonder if there is a, there is, does seem to be a difference in the way people's perspectives were at the, you know, the frontline places, and, and Jordan, I'm sure, with water is a frontline place, you know, with where climate change is beginning to bite, have a different view of this than somewhere like Southwest England, where I am, and where it doesn't, you know, climate change seems very remote to, to, to us. You know, it's going to get a little bit wetter. It might be a bit, bit stormier, but that's about it. Um, so I, I think that in some areas, climate change manages to spread and to be this all-embracing aspect. But alongside that, I think, and this is touched on some of the question, it becomes so huge and overwhelming that it almost freezes you. You know, you almost get locked in and you... Think, well what can we do it's so big so i think it's i think it's about trying to break it down into different components for sure because the, the totality is too huge um but i think they're all those threads lead back in some way into our fundamental relationship with the natural environment and and i think this assumption that one of the things that will change i think in the coming decade or so will be a disenchantment with economic growth as the metric that we view well-being and success and a, and a much more nuanced set of things around well-being um, that will that will encourage businesses governments you know every, the whole sectors to start to reassess how they judge um, success and how we judge our relationship with the, with the planet and i think that's where we need to keep our focus is, is that interface between humans and the environment um, that is is our, our bet of the problem, but yeah, it's a it's a you know a really difficult intractable problem. So I might before I ask Carol and Nisa if they want to come in on this as an issue, we've got a, another question uh, that sort of picks up on some of that. I think in in the ideas of the fact that you know different places will respond in different ways. You know issues of scale and in, in how things are, are perceived as well on the ground so this question um comes um via ash parton from kent at Saema in oxford and 
I'll just read this one out. So it says, in, in communicating scientific knowledge towards less advantaged regions, how can we avoid the issues of, of pushing our values and claiming the moral high ground? I understand that we have enough data, but what more can we provide, especially when exchanging knowledge towards the local citizens who do not have the luxury to care about global issues? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I work a lot in uh, disaster, uh, seismic risk in Istanbul, and um, and I have this thing where you know I, I, you go into these communities and you know these are communities that are going to be devastated by the next big earthquake in, in Istanbul. And so what I want to do to telling people about this, but I'm also hugely conscious that their everyday lives are really difficult. They're facing economic difficulties, social difficulties. You know, they're worried about health and wealth and all of this. And here's me coming along saying, oh, forget about all of that. Here's another thing to worry about because I'm interested in it from outside. And I think what that participatory approach of getting investigators to embed themselves more, expecting them to embed themselves more at the coalface in the communities will only lead to better science. Now, it has cost because it takes time to do that. And it doesn't suit very well the modern academic system of research papers and metrics and all the rest of it. But I think it's the only authentic way to do it. And I think that then has to be us reflecting the matters, you know, this shift, Bruno Latour talks about the shift between matters of fact and matters of concern. The way I interpret it, and it's a different way from him, is, is so communicators need to go away from just communicating what we know to actually listening and talking to people about what they're worried about because, and then using our knowledge to help there. And until you've listened and, and talked to and listened to people, you don't know that. So it is a very live issue, I think, within the, the way that we use science and knowledge, which is very much in a top-down elitist way at the moment of imposing science on people. And that has to, that has to um, be, read, be addressed really. Carolyn or Nizar, do either of you want to come in on, on those kinds of points? Maybe not immediately. I think, I guess, Ian, as well, that picks up on the idea of, of the co creation of knowledge. I just add that. Uh... Oh, sorry, I think we had a technical blip there. Uh, Nizar, please, please go ahead. Yes, I think. Uh... Okay. Yes, I'm just, I would just point out that uh, you have to balance between raising concern and uh, raising uh, uh, people's uh, sense of hopelessness. And so this, uh, to, to over hammer this idea will kind of pushes people towards the idea, well, okay, there's nothing we can do about this. And so this is, uh, this is also a dangerous uh, way to go. So I think uh, there needs to be a balance between uh, keeping people abreast about what we know and not pushing them to the point where they don't feel that any sacrifices they do or anything they, they might actually do at a personal level, that's what will make any difference. And so I would, I would kind of keep that uh, in mind as well. So, but that's, uh, so just keeping, keep people empowered. I think that's an important message as well. These are just on, on that point, I absolutely agree with you. And it, it struck me when you were talking about Petra, that in a way, 
maybe this is what you know this is really the motivation of the seminar is that by showing that people like people here in the past have faced these big challenges and overcome them through ingenious um, you know technologies or ingenious cultural practices that seems to me a, a positive thing because you're absolutely right about driving people into fatalism um, but in this sense that the past could be a, a way through do you not think Oh, no, I definitely agree with that. Um, from the perspective I think, of... Uh... Sorry. <laughs> um, I think, I guess, um, part of the motivation of, uh, of what I was speaking about is very much about um, valorizing um, traditional knowledge, valuing it, and... Uh, and I think, and um, although uh, people, farmers wouldn't necessarily uh, see it, see it or say it in that way, there's a huge amount of uh, science of observation in these ways of living. And so in terms of, we have to be very, very careful about values or, or um, expectation and managing all of the things that have been said, but I suppose um, communicating that there is um, a lot of knowledge, it has basis, and how can we engage with it um, in, a, in a humble way, <laughs> in a modest way, <laughs> is, uh, is uh, sort of a, a desire that's increasingly um, coming through, but it, Obviously, a lot of care has to be taken, and there are many audiences, many individuals uh, in here that uh, to uh, to speak with. But it's opening the debate, opening the issues um, beyond um, academic papers and and these things. And it's interesting and fascinating, um, I think, as well. Carol, <laughs> oh, do you you might. You might not want to answer this, but do you actually think the universities are capable of doing this? <laughs> so I would argue, I'm just, I mean, I'm not entirely being just provocative here. I would argue that we need to do big action on climate change and emissions in the next decade. And if we don't make a big downturn there, so we need to really act fast. So in terms of, you know, cultural history, that's faster than anyone's book, really. Um, do you think the academic world, just our world, not business and government, do you think our world is capable of switching modes in order to have action, because that's what keeps me awake at night. Uh, I share your um, I share your concern. Um, partly, the nature of academia makes us very sort of narrow or in in our little fields, and, and we do need more broader viewpoints. Um, I think we need to get, I think academics, somehow we need to get people much more excited about the world we live in. Mm. If we can do that, then, um, then I think that's a huge, a huge achievement, whatever the discipline that you're studying or the, you know, engineering, just getting people excited about right, yeah. uh, the world, um, the Levant region, that we, it's amazing um, history. It makes me, um, sad sometimes uh, 
that people can think it's just problems. <laughs> so can we get people excited about, um, I mean, Jordan covers, you know, for, uh, for climates, for vegetation zones, people for thousands of years have been dealing with these problems. Um, mm. And uh, in incredible, ingenious ways. And so I think uh, um, just getting people inspired and, and trying, um, I think, and just being humble, <laughs> I think mm. about it is uh, where I am right now. But yes, um, the problem with universities is you have, the wonder of universities is you have these structures that are very embedded, but it's very hard to um, turn the ship. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I think, I think communication is the way and thinking about um, university being an education or an education for life, um, not only for, um, for, for a job, <laughs> if you like. <laughs> um, I think that point of inspiration ties into, to, um, Nizal's point of not getting locked down in doom and gloom and fatalism as well. So I, I heartily agree with you on the inspiration side. Okay, uh, we've gone past our, our final, uh, our scheduled finish time. Um, so I, I'm gonna start to wrap things up now. Um, I just wanted to thank, um, before I thank my, uh, the speakers, really just thank you all for your, your questions and for your comments in the chat. There's a lot of great stuff in there and I'm sorry that we've not been able to, to get to it all and, and, and discuss it all um, today. I think that bodes well for, for Ian's new role and it, and it bodes well for, um, yeah, the work that, that CBRL continues to do in the region as well. And I think it gives us some focus and some ideas for for where we might go next, which is great. I've been frantically writing notes for my next grant application at least, which hopefully we can find a funder to, to do some transition we work with, which is another question that we didn't have time to discuss today. Um, so I really just wanted to really thank um, Ian, Nizar and Carol again for their time today and for their interesting and stimulating presentations and this great discussion. Thank you all very much. Um, for coming please do check out the cbrl website for for future events and we hope to see you at one of these and maybe even in person before too long um, again thank you very much thanks matt thanks everyone thank you thank, thank you. you thank you all thank you. it was a pleasure attendees <laughs>